bright enough for hanging around until the 25 to come can we make a start. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have Baldrick here. Um, we were just trying to work out whether she's ever done anything except be at the LSE or the GLA. Um, <laughs> except being brought up in those early demographic stages. Um, she did her first degree and her master's here in social policy and demography. Population development, development right? yeah. Um, and has been at the GLA since almost its birth, um, so October 2000, uh, joining what I think is a great demographic tradition that the LRC, the GLC before that. Um, it's not many things I trust GLA for, but demography is one of them. So it's a real pleasure to have you here and with a nice Catholic title, so you're going to update the demography of London in the light of bits of the census and everything else. Yep. Which will doubtless provoke a lot of discussion. So, forty minutes or so. Yeah, sure. Right? Just um, wave if I go. I look like yeah, I'm going you. over. Um, it's a fair amount of material, but There's thank you. There is. Give us all the material. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, it's it's a pleasure to be back. Um, actually, uh, after quite a few years um, out in out in the GLA world, um, and particularly at a time when London is facing a lot of urban uh, metropolitan districts are facing some really real big challenges when it comes to understanding their dam demographics, the dynamics of their population, and particularly those people who are who are there to deliver services and plan that sort of short-term, medium-term strategy. So, uh, thank you very much, and um, hopefully we'll be able to have a bit of a discussion afterwards. Um, with some food for thought on its way. Um, the plan is just to outline um, where we're at in terms of dem demographic trends in London, um, and then I'll, I'll look to, to give you an update and with some, some of my own personal insight when it comes to estimates and projections, both official and other uh, others that are out there, um, with some information from the 2011 census, which is starting to trickle out now. Okay, so... Um, for those of you who are demographers, we can't look at demography without trying to understand what's happening with um, fertility in London. And um, fertility in London has seen over the last 10, 12 years quite, quite a, a dramatic increase in the number of births. Um, since 2001, there's been a 28% increase in births. And this has been um, a combination of a, a young population. It's rejuvenated by migrants, both domestic migrants and international migrants, um, and also a combination of um, a cohort of women who had for some time delayed their family formation, kind of getting on the bandwagon and suddenly sort of saying, right, time to have some kids. And I think this is this was the bit of demography that kind of caught um, quite a few demographers short as an urban, urban western industrialised economy. It's natural for our fertility levels to go down, but 2000, bang, they started to creep up. I remember that time very well. I was a junior analyst at the GLA um, and John and I would look at those going, okay, they're creeping up year on year. Oh gosh, where is this going? What are we going to do. And I think these are the elements that um, ONS put out information on births and think, okay, that's interesting, but actually our job was to translate that for service planners. So if you were a local authority and you were planning school places in your local authority, things like this were quite important because these births, four years down the line, were translating to children who'd come knocking on your door saying, hi, my name's Joe, I need a primary school place. So fertility has been quite crucial. Um, we also looked at the fertility rates over, over the period of time, and we tend to generate these ourselves internally using information from ONS. What we see here is a shift in the fertility curves. This is the fertility rates for London, the fertility curves for London by age of mother. Um, and what we're seeing is um, a move away from a kind of double hump 
um, excuse the pun, um, um, of a cohort of women who tend to have their, start their families at a younger age, predominantly migrant communities, ethnic minority communities, and then an increase in age of mother first birth. So women opting to start their families earlier. Now, this, these curves hide a lot of quite distinct features at the local level. So if you were to look at fertility curves of places like Newham, Tower Hamlets, Barking and Dagenham, you would see a very pronounced double hump there. And in some instances, that first hump would be near as damn as big as the second hump. Look at other parts of London where your population is less ethnically diverse, much more homogenous, Richmond-upon-Thames, for instance, and you're, you're moving more, much more towards a distinctly single peak at the latter age where... Um, with mothers of, of, of who are slightly older when they start their family formation. Um, so, as I said, service planners, education planners want to know what does this mean for us locally and what's the direction of travel. Um, but that's part of the, the unique challenges of London, that what happens at the London level can't necessarily be imprinted onto the local level. So the most recent um, data from ONS on births show Local authorities at the top um, increases in, in, in the number of births over, over the year. Croydon, Southwark, Brent, and then you also have those local authorities that are seeing sort of a st static stagnation in their, in their births um, or even some decline. Um, what does that tell so us? Are, are those intercensal differences? Or no, the, year on year. The last... Oh no, sorry. Years. No, that's changes from. Da, 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 I think it's the last ten years. I'll have to double check. Sorry. No, that's that's year on year birth increases. Sorry. Because Richmond has seen a flattening. Yeah. So it's actually quite stark differences year on year. Um, but there, what the, what this tells us is that there aren't any actual clear. Um, clear patterns. So when we're looking at assumptions for London, it's not necessarily the safest thing to imprint those onto local authorities where certain trends, um, where we're seeing a certain travel in terms of direction for trends. Um, moving on to migration, as I said, London's traditionally um, attracted uh, migrants. It's London attracts significant numbers of migrants in internationally as well as internally. Our internal migrants predominantly students, young graduates, um, first jobbers um, coming to London. But I want you to look at internal migration specifically with a look at what's happened since 2008, since the downturn, the economic downturn. And what we've seen in that time is actually a, a fairly steady, some slight increases in internal inflows, so numbers from other parts of the country, people are still coming to London, and we think that's predominantly as a result of London's labour market and its resilience compared with other parts of the country. Um, but what we're seeing is a decline in outflows, and traditionally London lost um, its migrants to its neighbouring counties and districts, um, commutable distances to London's labour market, young families moving out, and, and moving out bigger homes, you get more for your money, but still a commutable distance for, for jobs, etc. Um, and this, this is also one element of, of, of the service planning picture that's putting pressure on things like school places, because where once you had young families moving out to Hampshire, Kent, Hereford, um, sorry, Hertfordshire, etc., um, there's less instances of those volumes the, to the same extent, those families moving out. So those children are staying, they're staying in London longer, and as a result, that's putting pre um, pressure on school places. 
Okay, just coming um, coming on to the flip side of um, of migration international. Um, I haven't got any London level data at the moment, but generally speaking, 30 to 40 percent of international migrants. Um, nationally tend to come to London, so we do look at the national picture quite quite carefully. Um, and again, we've seen, I mean, it was in the newspapers most recently, the net migration has gone down, and that's pre predominantly a facet of a decline in, in international inflows. But as you can see, there's less, there's less clear patterns here with regards to economic downturn since 2008. Um, and, I, and our view, or sort of my personal view, is that London will continue to, inter, to attract international migrants um, just by its very nature of its labour market in, in a global context, its higher education institutions, etc. So, um, the, and similarly, international migration is it's one of those elements that's ha harder to kind of control um, or, or to put policy levers in place, although um, um, current um, coalition government is, is, is looking to do that, particularly in regards to students um, and student visas. But international migrants, a large chunk of those are um, from, uh, from Europe, from the wider European Union. We've got very good and strong links still with our Commonwealth countries and then other parts of the English-speaking world. Okay, I'll put this in just to be topical um, because there is a fair amount in the media about um, Bulgarian and Romanian e e European Union expansion and this is the national insurance number, um, new registrants for national insurance numbers. So these are essentially new migrants from these countries who are looking to work um, in the UK. And as you can see from 2008, 2009, that's when arrivals started, so it's not particularly now or any time soon, although we'll be keeping a close eye on the numbers as they, as they come through over the, next, over the coming years. Okay, so where does that take us in terms of population um, estimates and projections? Well, we had a census in 2001. The first data came out in July of last year, and there was a real significant upward revision from that point in terms of population um, population numbers for London. The census was 8.17 million. Um, our view, and I think broadly speaking, local authorities in London, um, the census was good for what it had planned to do, which was capture your usually resident population, we think the census went well in London. ONS put a lot of energy and effort into ensuring that they captured some of the um, some of the more problematic issues that they had in 2001, and there was much more of an emphasis and effort in terms of ensuring there was adequate field staff in London. London had all the typical hard-to-count indicators associated with it. So broadly speaking, we think the census went well in London. Um, ONS had also, um, in the last couple of years, made some changes to other um, problematic areas of their um, methodology when it came to population estimates, and that included international migration. And what we found as a result of the changes to that methodology, there were additions to London's population, so that in itself caused an uplift to London's population. Bear in mind that the changes to international migration were only, they were only able to implement those for estimates from 2006 onwards. Um, and so we have a combination of these two things along with fertility, which have um, added to London's population, and that then feeding through to population projections has resulted in significant upward um, 
population projections. So this is just a chart showing historical estimates and projections, and essentially official mid-year estimates following on from the 2001 census have been at the sort of, the, that's the lower end of the bar. GLA population projections, um, GLA does two, at this stage GLA did one set of population projections which are constrained to housing development. So the trajectory for housing development in any particular local authority will constrain the population growth there. Um, um, and that's the red line upwards. So <coughs> um, by 2011 uh, the GLA was uh, projecting a population for London of just over um, 8 million um, and ONS major estimates were uh, sort of flatlining there. Um, ONS subnational projections um, is that green line which you see getting steeper from 2006 onwards and that's the new international migration methodology kind of kicking in at that stage. Okay, but what does the future hold going for, forward from here? Now, a combination of all the factors that I've mentioned so far um, have really significantly increased the population projections for London. We have here quite a broad range of forecasts covering GLA forecasts. Two sets of GLA forecasts are here, both pre-census and post-census, and this also includes ONS pre-census subnational projections as well as post-census of national projections. I think the key thing here is that both ONS and the GLA, um, when it was up, up refreshing its forecast, refreshing its projections, it only had access to information that is available in the public domain. Similarly, ONS didn't have any further information from its census databases that you and I couldn't get a hold of. So what we're seeing here is a partial refresh of, um, of projections models. Um, but what we're seeing is quite a significant increase. The worst case scenario, in a manner of speaking, is the ONS 2011 based subnational projection, which, looks, which takes us up to a uh, close to 9.5 million population. What's that by 20, close to 2021? Um, the GLA projections, um, we have looked at two sets of projections now, both a constrained projection with housing, but we've also started to look at trend-based unconstrained projections as well. Um, and the GLA unconstrained projection will take you as far as 10.5 million um, up to 2041. And, and um, Dave, that's what will potentially come through for Transport for London forecasts. Okay. So what we're seeing quite, quite, quite scary, I think some local authorities have said, um, some planners have said quite scary population forecast for London. Um, but as I said earlier, we need to be careful with these because they are only partial refreshes that inc incorporate only a certain amount of census data. So for instance, the ONS projection, um, my particular concerns with that ONS projection is that it doesn't, it, it's taken, a, it's calculated fertility and migration rates based on pre-census population <coughs> estimates. Now, because population estimates pre-census were on the lower side, that's created inflated fertility rates then applied to higher populations. So that pushes fertility and births, births projections upwards quite significantly. And we've had some um, feedback from local authorities that say, oh my goodness, is this really going to happen? Because uh, we can't bear that kind of, um, that, that number of um, 
primary school classes and, and etc. That the impact is quite significant. So I think this is where we have to be very cautious about the forecast that we're seeing at the moment. The concern is that ONS won't refresh this forecast for another two years. Um, so in the meantime, people will be looking at this and thinking, okay, that's the best we've got at the moment. Um, but this is one of the reasons why the GLA has always done its own projections and we went, um, we did create our own pre-census back series that aligned with the census point so we've um, diminished that, the risk of that kind of um, um, overinflated fertility rates um, concern. Okay, um, I just wanted to kind of flag migration assumptions also because um, the subnational projections that ONS put out um, are trend-based in that they take the last five years of fertility, mortality, migration trends. Um, but the last five years saw, saw some quite unique um, circumstances in, in terms of uh, demographic dynamics. So if you were to put a line through that sort of 2008 point, um, you've got out-migration dropping quite significantly, um, inflows increasing quite a bit, an increase in net flows as well, and then the ONS assumption will say those things will continue for the next 25 years. Now, is that a sensible thing to do? Um, ONS would say no, that's how we do projections, they're trend-based, we take the last five years, regardless of what that five-year trend says, that's what we do. So that, so that in itself is compounding the issue around an upward revision and, and the sort of the concerns that are echoing across service planners. So where were the main problems? Well, for London, we, we um, as in my, myself and my colleagues at the GLA, we still have some concerns about the 2001 census and its enumeration. Yes, London had population revisions subsequent to census, but we do, we're not absolutely sure that those were all accounted for. Um, and uh, uh, fantastic colleagues at ONS also won't um, I, I think they're yet to categorically say that there were some concerns with the 2001 census but they've kind of stopped making comparisons between 2011 and 2001 which implies that there were some issues to us um, anyhow so if you get that base wrong then your subsequent years are going to be off um, so, th so that's one major concern. That international inflows, the revision only went back to 2006, so you've got a good five years before that there, wasn't, um, there was no revisions to, so there, there'll be, and those 2004 onwards with the EU expansion, we can expect quite significant implications there. Um, and then another element of, of, um, of the sort of forecasting side that kind of caught us a bit was um, our underestimation of average household size. And now, this is quite crucial because um, hitherto um, the assumption had always been that average household size will decline. It has done for the last 30 years. The downward, um, that downward trend will continue. And CLG's household forecasts and the household formation rates that we used in our GLA projections from CLG similarly had that assumption. But it was not an assumption that we were ever entirely comfortable with in London because of London's unique characteristics and concerns. And then when the 2011 census came out, yep, it pretty much told us that we were right. This is a ward level map, sorry it's not coming out quite as well as a bit of light, of um, average household size in London in 2001 and you'll ha it, it just kind of the, the dark shading is um, where average household size is is above three um, and at this stage 
There are 12 local authorities, sorry, 12 wards in London where average household size is above three, clustered mainly around this bit of Newham. Bear in mind the Olympic Park sits about there. Um, and then further out west towards Ealing, South Hall, and then a little bit just on that kind of border of Harrow um, and Brent. So there's 12, local, uh, 12 wards at that stage. By 2011, there were 50. 50 wards in London with average house, household side over three. And they're, again, mainly clustered around those three already distinct um, localities that we saw earlier. Um, just a, a difference between 2001 and 2011. Um, so where, where are we now in terms of looking forward? It's a challenging time. What are we going to do? Just carry on doing the things the way that we did them in the past? Probably not if we want to be better at doing it. Um, so we can start with average household size, the future trends. As I said earlier, we need to rethink that declining average household size trend, particularly in the short term, um, because as much as it might be a planning um, ambition or a political ambition. The reality is London is quite unique. Um, there are combinations of factors here that are, are playing out, not just the fact that it's more costly in London, there are more sharers, etc., but we've had a significant fertility boom. Each birth adds a person to a household. Secondly, we have an ageing mi ethnic minority population. Now, traditionally, our sort of white British ageing population went off and migrated out of London, went to the coastal towns. Um, I don't think that's going to happen with our ethnic minority population. Um, there may be some element of migration overseas back to their country of origin, but if my grandmothers are anything to go by, all their family is here in the UK or, or in, in, in the US, and they have zero plans to go back to India, basically, um, and they really don't want to go to Margate. Um, <laughs> I don't think she's ever been, um, as delightful as it is, but well, I, I do think that the kind of ageing population, Indians, Pakistani, Bengali, um, the um, Caribbean, um, uh, Caribbean populations, I think average household size will also increase as a result of families and, um, living together and grandmothers living with, um, with their sons and daughters, much to their uh, concern. Anyhow, um, that's, that, that, we'll yet to see how that will play out. Um, so again, we need to be a bit more, a bit more um, creative with how we use this information and more sophisticated when it comes to our trend-based assumptions. I don't think it's any good just saying, let's just take the last five years, because the last five years have been really, really quite unique. Um, let's rethink fertility scenarios. Can we really assume the last five years of upward fertility trends just continuing? Oh gosh, we really need to think about that more carefully. Um, and similarly for migration scenarios, as you can see, that's what's ONS has done and that's what's causing a lot of people to get worried. Um, so okay, we don't have to be particularly sophisticated, this is average household size historically, as you can see a downward trend, everybody thought it will continue to go down, 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 and then we saw flatlining between 1991 and 2001, although I think there's probably re really a bit of an increase in 2001 if we are to um, sort of do uplift of 2001 numbers in the way that we think. So now we're looking at more of an upward trend. Um, how does that play out? Average household size, let's push that forward, going upwards. I don't know, some planning colleagues might get a bit concerned about that. Some of the political, um, some of our political masters might not like that all that much. Flatlining or even um, a sort of a flatlining in the very, very short term and then a gradual decline. 
but it's something worth thinking about and I think it's something that we at the GLA will definitely put more, more effort into in terms of what we forecast as a more reasonable assumption going forward. Similarly, um, our migration scenario, well, we had um, the 2008 effect, not one for me, but plenty of esteemed economists and economic colleagues around might be able to give us a better idea of when recovery might kick in and whether we make any assumptions about the extent to which we go back to the trends that were there previously from that point forward. So again, something that um, we can discuss and debate at great length. I'm not going to pretend I know the answer to this one, but I'm of the view that we can't just say the last five years is what we go with. Okay, so just kind of coming back very quickly to the census. Uh, census um, was 27th of March, was it 27th of March 2011? Um, first set of data came out in July. Since then, between September and Christmas and then further into January, we've had what, what are known as the univariate tables. So this is very kind of headline um, information and it's variables by geography. There's no sort of cross-tabulation of variables just yet. So we have a usually resident population of 8.17 million in London with uh, three, nearly 3.3 million households. Um, over 36% of Londoners were born outside the UK. So that plays into the sort of London and its migrants and its attractiveness to migrants. And that's also a fair, fair old jump from 2001 when it was around 27%. Um, and then for London boroughs where less than half the population is UK born, again, it's, it's local authorities that are known to us, Brent, Newham, Westminster, KNC. If I were to show you information on um, country of birth of mother, births, births by local authority um, where the country of birth of mother is outside the UK, the same four would come up. I think the last set of information we had um, was that 57% of births in London are to mothers born outside the UK, and Newham had 75% of its births to women who were born outside the UK. So, you know, there's this fairly strong correlation. Gives me confidence in the census, let's just say. Okay. Um, I didn't want to dwell on some of the other information that we've gotten used to getting from census, but this census threw up a lot of new questions and new information that we hadn't had before. And naturally, uh, those of us that are statistically minded, we have to take these with a pinch of salt, because when you get a new question, you can't be absolutely sure of the quality of the inf information you get from it. Um, but for the first time, my, um, respondents were asked how long they've been in the country, um, and there's information available on length of Day. So this is a distribution of migrants proportional um, to that local authority who have, had, who have a length of stay less than two years. And as you can see, you've got some usual, um, the usual kind of culprits are there. You've got your Newham, Tower Hamlets on the dark on the eastern side. And over on the west, you've got your Camden's, K&C, Westminster, etc. Uh, similarly, we've had um, information on more than 10 years length of stay. And again, you see a nice geographical distribution, somewhat different though, as there's more, some of our more established communities are starting to become more visible with this, this um, particular variable. But um, it, we'll get a lot more detail with regards to these new variables, but it's, it's, it's one of the things I've been quite interested to look at for myself. Housing tenure, uh, similarly, 25% of London's um, housing, is, uh, housing tenure is privately rented. Um, and what we see, oh, sorry, what we see is some changes in terms of um, 
over time in terms of kind of owner occupation or owns with a mortgage. And essentially every local authority in London saw a decline in the proportion of its population uh, that owns with a mortgage or loan. Significant increases in social rented and significant increases in the private rented. So again, something for people to have a look at, um, at their, in their own time. I will pass on the web link. Okay, so housing. Um, again, it fits in so closely with demography that I could not dwell on it, but um, quite a proliferation in the number of flats in London. We, we noticed that on the ground, but there's been a, uh, nearly a 19% increase in the flats and very little by way of houses and bungalows. Tower Hamlet saw the largest increase in its number of dwellings, some 33%. Um, and that's been the largest proportional increase in London. And that fits in quite well with the population side because over that period of time, Tower Hamlet's population increased by 30%. Um, there is an indicator of overcrowding um, in the census information that we've had so far. Um, and there, London won't come as a surprise, but nearly 12% of households have too few bedrooms for, for their occupants. Um, and 19 of the 20 boroughs, uh, 19, 19 of the 20 local authorities nationally that are most overcrowded are in London. So again, there's, there's, those are the kind of things that we expected to see. Highest nationally, Newham, Brent, Tower Hamlets. So again, some, some of the kind of usual boroughs there. Okay, religion. Um, religion was a voluntary question. Um, and has been um, for the last two censuses. The, the reason I like religion is because people respond. 92% of respondents in the census in London responded to this question, which I find quite surprising. We're more compliant than we think. Um, so, um, so yeah, uh, Christian uh, religion, I would have guessed there'd be a decline in terms of proportion and numbers. Um, there are now more than a million Muslims in London. Uh, and there are more of us who have no religion. So, um, so I always find this one quite useful. I'm yet to meet someone who will try and convert two sets of census data using some longitudinal information to do some projections for this. But um, it, it's only a matter of time before we get asked at the GLA to do it. Um, okay. Uh, and then... Just one more on languages, because um, again, languages wasn't something that we were asked in previous censuses. Um, and there was no, no surprises. The language is a great, great um, indicator of the diversity of London, where 74% of households in London contain occupants who all have English as their main language. And that's quite a bit lower than the national average of 91. Um, Quite a few London households don't have English as their main house as their main language, um, which which I think is again doesn't say that says a lot about the diversity in that their main language of their household might be something um, something else, but English might be a secondary language. Um, let me just show you. Yeah, this is the proportion of those households where English is not the main language of the occupants. And similarly to some of the other charts, or some of the other maps that we've seen, there's Newham, there's Tower Hamlets, some 20% or more of households in those local authorities, English is not the main language of the occupants. 
Okay. Um, a little bit on sort of li limiting long-term illness. The census only has a, a very small section on health, um, but I wanted to flag it up in that generally there seems to be much better health in, uh, amongst the population. Um, there is much less, compared with 2001, much less instance of um, not so good health, um, and more people are responding that their health is good. Um, so in its most sort of crudest sense, it shows that we're generally health healthier, or at least we think we are. What does, what does the future hold? Well, um, starting from May this year, we'll start to get some of the really interesting what I think are really interesting elements of census data, which is the multivariate analysis. This is where you can look at ethnicity cross-tabulated with some labour market indicators um, or qualifications, etc. Um, and that will start to come for local authorities. We'll start to get that from May onwards. ONS are a little bit behind, I think. They really do plan to start to release this in May, but they're... they're Sorry, in March, yes, but they're a little bit stuck. But they've shifted some of their release around. So where once we thought we were getting the smaller geography, ward level, MSOA earlier, that's not the case. We'll get local authority first from May onwards. Um, release 4 will follow follow in the summer. Hopefully that won't be pushed until autumn. Um, more ex well, we'll get more detail, exact timings um, in April, or at least they... Um, I think by their rules they have to let us know at least a month before we start to get the information so I expect April to be um, the point in which we'll find out a bit more um, just a, a website there for you uh, the GLA's got a fair amount of census analysis up in terms of interactive maps um, where you can sort of choose your geographies, click through variables and, and compare places. There are local authority level, ward level and some LSOA level information on that and it's, it's freely accessible through the London Data Store and there's my contact details. Fantastic, thank you very much. Right, and there might be material for a few questions or if you'd like Going to contribute, can you please say who you are? Yes. Um, well, my name is Nick Faraday. Um, excuse me if I ask a basic question, because I'm not sort of expert on demographics or anything. Um, but are, are the figures you've been saying actual estimates of population as opposed to counts? Because I'm aware that a census is differently a count, and it always misses groups of people who aren't registered or aren't found by the census process. So do you estimate those missing people? I think this was the first census outputs where ONS said these are estimates, not counts. Even the population first release in July um, last year, which was just the headline population numbers, local authority. We on ONS, given the nature of population dynamics, um, the difficulties in counting, um, they the, and the process, the process of not just getting the forms and processing them, but then going out there, quality assuring the data, adding in information, estimating the missing numbers, the missing people, estimating their characteristics. So much estimation is now part of the census process that they're loath to call it a count. So we're no longer in the world of counts, I'm afraid. No. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I'm Christina Harley from PBA uh, in Argentina or something. Uh, it's just a technical question, but about this you not know, projecting forward only five 
from five years for a long time. I think I tried to ask the owners or someone once, you know, what is, and they said, well, it's not as bad as it looks because five years is only the local stuff and everything is controlled to national turtles, which, you know, there's much better data and, you know, it comes from much lower yeah. trends. And I just wanted to know what you thought about. Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, national constraint to national totals, yes. Um, there, the London impact then, it's how it's distributed and divvying up and then the forecasting side of it. Um, it's, it's a difficult one because we have colleagues in other large metropolitan districts and other authorities and when you're distributing a pie um, or you're constraining it, there's a fair amount of wrangling between, oh, you've got more than you should have, it should come our way. So for instance, the subnational projections, the latest ONS subnational projections, you could argue when you compare with GLA projections, put too many people in Westminster, K and C, and not enough people in Newham and Tower Hamlets and Barking and Dagenham. Um, and when, as that has in the past inevitably paid out for resource allocation, that creates problems. John. Hello. Uh, John Carey. Um, for the next few weeks, to April the 1st, I, I'm still the chairman of the North East and City of London um, cluster of seven primary care trusts with a population of over 2 million and a budget of over 2 billion. And one of the concerns that I have is whether it's a process concern, really, which is, which is how your data, your estimation, GLA material, will get into the system. And I say that because um, I've tried to add up the material gets of fertility and births, and it fits. It fits the numbers of births in London, mm -hmm. Whittington, you see, or for all the big acute hospitals in there, it's adding up, taking up the births, it, it, it adds up. Um, but there are some real issues because in April the clinical commissioning groups will take will take over and will start commissioning services, health services throughout London. And there are big debates that have been going on for some years about the numbers of people on GP registration lists yeah. because money follows yeah. those. Um, the provision of out of hours urgent care where people live, work, and house, cultures and get And the big issue is the reconfiguration of hospital services where you know, clinical excellence has been Mm. centralised, yeah. so people have to travel. And I'm just nervous that after April, um, the material has been relied on by NHS London, which is going to somehow not get through to these clinical commissioning groups who are going to be responsible for commissioning services to populations of about a quarter million each, with yeah. budgets of about four million million each. Yeah. It's quite critical that this stuff gets in yeah. early on. Um, no, I absolutely agree with you. Um, a few months back, um, health policy colleagues at the GLA involved us in their discussions with um, those involved in the transformation and, and the transition arrangements. Um, so I was on a steering group where I have to admit I find the health side of things quite baffling because there are so many different organisations and they have different remits and they have acronyms galore. But there was, um, and all and will continue to be an offer of support from the GLA to um, health and to PCTs. With PCTs moving into local authorities, we have a strong relationship with um, local authorities anyway, who use our data, know us. And public, public health. Public, sorry, yeah, public health. 
Um, yes. The other aspect is um, a little bit with CCGs. That everything that we have, we put out and is publicly available. It's all available through the data store. There's some issues around disclosure, um, but our access, you know, access to us is not, there's no gatekeeper. Um, we are there to help health services, education planners, all manner of people. And, and um, there is, there's definitely more that we can do in terms of touching base with things as they transition in 1st of April onwards. Let's, let's talk, because I'm, I'm acutely aware that ONS projections might be saying something, and there's, some, there's a real concern over it, yeah. Um, you mentioned a couple of reasons why uh, that accounts for the uh, lower out internal out of migration. One is temporary economic, you know, people can't afford potentially, yeah, you know, uh, can't afford or want to stay in London, that's where the work is. And another, you talked about some possibly um, minority ethnic families not wanting to move out of London. Have you got any uh, evidence that, you know, about what each of those? Um, Processes contribute to the overall trend, or, or is anybody planning to do anything with the migration from the census? Absolutely, from the census. Migration is one of the last sets of information to come out because it's classified along with the flow data. So um, it's we won't get we won't get very much any time soon, at least until the t I'd say about December this year. Um, and then there's the process of also specially commissioning tables, which we've already started to do in putting those, uh, those requests to ONS for access to data. Um, have I got evidence? Not enough. And it's quite difficult to unpick, because on the one hand, there is some anecdotal evidence to suggest that the improved, improving standards in primary schools is also keeping young families in the capital where once they would have fled. Um, and whether that contributes to uh, a more an increase in perceptions that actually you can raise children in London. Have we? Uh, and the more people you see doing that around you, the more normal and acceptable that becomes. The less likely you are to say, "Ah, oh, forget it. Why bother with Hampshire when you can stay uh, stay in Peckham?" Um, Peckham's nice. I don't live very far from Peckham, um, <laughs> and I have children. Um, but it's, it's one of those things, it's quite difficult to unpick at the moment. Um, census will tell us partially, um, but I find that the way that we were engaging with local authorities on the ground, those people who were planning the services, who had frontline staff, who were taking those applications from, from parents, they're often a, a real a kind of wealth of information in their heads when they just sort of got talking to people, where have you come from, what are you doing, what are your plans, that kind of thing. And so some of that would feed back, but no, we're, we're struggling with evidence at the moment, I'll be, I'll be frank about that. Can, can I link this to Christina's question? Because it seemed to me, the issue about whether you assume that the last five years is the future or not, I mean, it's partly one about whether the numbers are reliable for the last five years, which is what you picked up on. Mm. But it's also exactly this question about whether there's any real reason to expect the future's going to be like the last five years as opposed to yep. some other arbitrary five years we've begun to the last 50 mm -hmm. and, I, and it's one of the things that really worries me here. So the, the discussion with Ruth, it was, we start off with an assumption based on the last five years, and then we gloss it. 
with some intelligence yeah. based upon looking at a few cross-sectional tabs for the census and focus groups and intuitions. Yeah. And there's an enormous amount of information actually in the time series changes, isn't there? Uh, and the relationship between those and other variables. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if we had some serious economists in the house, everybody would be saying, I would be saying as well, that what we ought to be doing is modeling this. Mm -hmm. And if you go back and look at the data from the 1960s and 70s, you can see yeah. stable relationships between migration in and out of London, what's happening to the national housing market, uh, what's happening to the price of fuel, and a few yeah. other things. And these days, you can see a relationship with international migration as well. So why isn't the starting point for all of these projections trying to look at processes and what the time series evidence and cross-sectional evidence tells us about the fit of models to those processes? Because you know, for some reason, demography has always, in my experience, been resistant to this. Yes. And it's always either been the future's going to be exactly like the last numbers we seriously trust. Yeah. Um, and if we thought the sample was big enough, it would be the last year. Yeah. But, uh, we'll average five, just to, yes. in case the numbers aren't big enough. Um, or we use judgment. Or yes. worse still, you seem to be hinting at, we let the politicians give us some guidance. Because while you said that some of those numbers were, actually wouldn't go down terribly well, um, perhaps implying that they wouldn't actually appear as GLA projections, if they didn't go down terribly well. No, God forbid. We're in, no, that's one thing. Um, we get to be impartial somewhat. Um, but there are concerns. You can't be impartial if you're so, paid ultimately by politicians. <laughs> I have to say, when, when there have been higher and lower figures, and when there have been ones yeah. that have been housing constraint or not housing constraint, the ones that have actually been disseminated have been chosen by somebody, not, not to borrow. Um, I, oh gosh, no, I wouldn't say that, I think we have control over what we can put out in terms of the technical side, yes, but at the same time, we, get we have to put forward our best, most reasonable view of what we think the future is, and what risks are associated and what the implications are, because to, to not know that would be foolhardy for, for our political masters, but um, coming back to the sort of the demographic discipline a little bit. Um, I don't know whether it's just my experience, but we've all, up until quite recently, tended to work in isolation. Like you say, it was judgment, it was some element of the data, but it was looking at demography as a very isolated thing. Um, but over the last couple of years, we've moved into a sort of a, a wider intelligence unit that has economists in it and have adopted more of them multidisciplinary approach to having a look at this. Um, so so looking at those challenges. In particular, things like migration, um, housing markets, and trying to model elements of that. It's been a little bit harder than I would have liked. I'm not an economist, but it's quite difficult to get a sort of, okay, can you go away and do this for us? Because we think there's a relationship, and we need some, you know, we need stuff from you to be able to build up into our assumptions. I don't know if that easy. I don't know why. We're working at it though. I think the multidisciplinary approach is the way forward if we're going to do it um, holistically. Yes. Well, you know, one very interesting 
the graph I showed there, which you kind of picked up quite quickly, which is the changing average household size by borough. Oh, the ward one, yeah. Yeah, the ward one, because it seems like quickly, it seems like it's kind of quite concentrated. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what is it the change? That's the change average household size. Was that one? Right, okay. No, no. If you think, um, because of the clustering, I think there is a strong sort of um, population dynamic here. So you've got in and around Newham, um, the population composition of Newham, um, the transport links. It is migrants very much are attracted to that, that particular locality. Um, I think... I think the affordability and cost of living in London plays a big part in um, things like average household size. But it's not the only thing. And I think we can get hung up on that, just that element of it. Um, but there are di you know, demographic dynamics there. Fertility rates where fertilities increase significantly. Um, each baby adds a new person. Is, is there an issue about the relationship between household size and the number of people in the dwelling? And there's a conceptual issue about the household as a... Because yeah. it seems to me that across most of London there's been a process of cramming more people into an almost fixed amount of space. Yes. I mean, except for the Kensington and Chelsea's where some people manage to expel. Yes. Yeah, like, uh, a different kind of migrant. Yeah. Um, and, and it comes up differently in different parts yes. of the map because in some places you fit more people in without having larger households. They're yes. not households, they're, they're fragmented yes. individuals yes. in that space where you split up the house into something split up smaller. Yeah. But I wonder whether it's actually terribly helpful actually to think about the household size as one issue yeah. and then the number of households per dwelling as a separate one. Yeah. When there does seem to be, and I have this prejudice about it, this pervasive process across London, hmm. with more people have been crammed into small amounts of space, mostly, I think, because that's all they can, can afford when they, many of them, when they arrive in the country. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think it's very crude. As it just seems to be yeah. po they're pointing different kinds of directions as to what the questions are one has to yeah. think about. Yeah. There's a related point actually, which is you had a graph that shows the unconstrained forecast and then the housing constrained forecast. And there's a very wide gap between them. Mm. And clearly, they're not completely unrelated. No. Uh, but on the other hand, you can't just constrain. You can't say, no. for the sorts of reasons that Ian's just raised. Yeah. Um, so I suppose my question is, how, if you were to make a projection based on the two things that are going on there, yeah. one, the fact that um, th there aren't enough houses to match the forecast growth, and two, the fact that some of that is met by uh, more people in less space. Mm -hmm. How in your forecast is that resolved, in your, in your projections? 
Um, on the housing constrained projection side, there are assumptions about average household size that play through. So at the moment, there are, those assumptions are about a decline in average household size, and therefore you have a constrained population, hence the wider gap. Whereas average household size, um, with an unconstrained projection, you don't have that household constraint. Average household size doesn't factor at all into it. But, but where, uh, as between those two, yeah. that fourchette, yeah. where do you, um, where do you actually, if you were to say what our central case is, what are the elements that you would compose there between, you're not going to say we are going to constrain our forecast to the population, we're going to show what happens if yeah. you do, but where it, if you're going to tell Boris what you think the best guess is for the next 20 years, how do you reconcile those two tensions? Um, they're done for different purposes. Well, to Boris, also Ken. <laughs> oh, no. I did used to work for Ken. I can't forget Ken. Um, no, they're done for slightly different purposes. I think we have to be absolutely clear that I think we're going back to the days where we're not ever going to just have one forecast. Um, we're increasingly, it's a range. Um, and the, this goes back to Ian's point. When presenting those two forecasts, we will have done a number of scenarios for each of them and eliminated those that we thought were unrealistic uh, for a number of purposes. So um, take, for instance, average household size and, and the decline and what assumptions we make about that. That will have played out in the preparatory work before we get to that stage. I, I don't think we're in the business of saying, well, there's only ever going to be one projection for London. Can we just develop this um, this business? Because I mean, this is this is really, in yeah. practical terms, this is really crucial, isn't it? Yeah. You've talked a bit about assumptions you're making on average size of households, yeah. so, uh, which is fine. But the other side of the coin is you have to make assumptions on how many dwellings there will be, um, and presumably you actually have to make an assumption whether it's constrained or even unconstrained. Because if there were twice as many dwellings as there are now, they would be so cheap, it would completely alter the dynamics and change the population of London, but they'd be cheaper outside. Mm -hmm. So you, there must be an implicit assumption on, on housing availability, say, even with the unconstrained one, and even more so, obviously, with the constraints. So yeah. I wonder if you could sort of comment on that. On the constrained side, we take the um, a, a capacity indicator. So. Um, I was going to say, don't look at the back. He's a welcome to comment, but the Strategic Housing Land Availability Assessment, which, which looks at available capacity and then translates that into a sense of um, housing trajectories by local authority. Was that the sort of London plan process? We just came yes. through that sort of negotiated yeah. between boroughs and. Uh, yes, that. yeah. So that that is the. That essentially is what. Um, what is incorporated as, as the housing constraint at local authority level. And we do a bit of, you know, sort of distribution at ward level, etc., and, and, and spreading it out. Um, but all of that is, there's a fair amount of information that says, okay, this is what we know from the capacity study, this is what we know from local authorities in terms of planning um, applications and things that were in process. This is information we have on unit, number of units and phasing of development. Um, so the, the assumption is that at the smallest geography, uh, ward level, 
whatever is built will be occupied. Um, and yeah, that I mean, Town Hamlets is a, is a fine example of, of de development at that stage. Now, the unconstrained projection, I think it comes back to the kind of London plan process um, of ensuring that you've got an adequate evidence base and you've covered all the different possible options when it comes to looking at what the population forecast might be. Um, so that's where we've moved to actually saying, well, let's look at, um, in that sense, an unconstrained projection. We need to have an understanding of what the population implications of that are. Does that make sense? Yes, don't bad. Um, I, I was uh, at one time the link between the housing capacity study and the demography team at City Hall. Um, I mean, this has always been a problematic exercise because through the capacity study, you're identifying where there is capacity for developments as a local level uh, based on a site-by-site -site assessment. But then in obviously feeding that into the projections, you're making assumptions about that capacity being built out over a certain period of time for a certain mix of housing, both in terms of tenures and a certain mix in terms of household time. What's been quite interesting, obviously, if you look at the comparison between 2001 and 2011, that the housing output has fallen far short of the identified targets, which were based on capacity. So what's actually happened in terms of the population distribution over the last decade is obviously not necessarily in line with what was assumed when the capacity studies were done. And in fact, that's actually going back to the 1999 capacity study rather than the 2004 and 2009 ones. Um, so it, it's quite problematic. But our argument always was, unlike government projections, it was much more useful to take into account where the housing was likely to be built and feed that into the projections rather than just work from the assumption of trend-based projections, which is what basically happened in the rest of the country, um, not actually having any regard to where there was a potential to build housing. Uh, what would be quite interesting is to do a much fuller analysis of where the housing has been built in that 10-year period relative to what had actually been anticipated from the 99 study, but also in terms of whether the assumptions about the kind of housing that was being built which is about density, about mix, it's about affordability, were actually correct or not, because clearly they wouldn't be. Um, but this projection, it, it, it's always a problematic exercise. I mean, the, one of the fundamental issues is any study that's actually capacity-based has to be primarily at distribution rather than overall constraints on population, unless, of course, you have a detailed understanding of what's actually happening outside London, which is why, in a sense, this London Home Counties relationship has always been problematic. Um, but uh, my argument's always been that you should take into account the full projected housing need within the region for the purposes of actually arguing for housing investment um, and making assumptions about the shortage of housing leading to significantly increased overcrowding um, can actually end up as a force of strength on the housing requirement estimates because you're making assumptions about sharing. It's quite difficult to I've always believed in a sense that it's actually problematic if you don't actually have a proper analysis between voluntary sharing and involuntary sharing. And what we've actually seen is a lot more input, probably because we don't really know, but an assumption about much more involuntary sharing. And if you build that in as acceptable into your household projections, you've got a problem in not projecting housing yeah. need efficiently. But it's not a pure science, it's quite yeah. problematic. And as from the discussions before, I mean, having been in City Hall, although the uh, 
the demographers are certainly systematically purist and statistical in their advice, and Ian's entirely right that the actual option that's selected for policy purposes has regard to policy objectives, and it did very much in Ken's day as much as in Boris's day. <laughs> Can I just say, I mean, you started talking about need. I think that's one of the other problems. So we have data which doesn't tell us anything about need at all. Yeah. To some extent, it tells us about the intersection of demand and supply. Yeah. But it's in a context where one of the things that, that some of the people are really concerned about is to try and quantify a need. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a, that's a whole bundle of worms or whatever. And I think that's the plan for a reasonable trend-based assumption to help assess and evaluate what need may be in the crudest of ways though. Yes. I think in using these types of numbers for planning, there's a tremendous confusion in most people's minds about between capacity demand, which is what people can afford, need, which is what they ought to have, you know, capacity, which is what you can count, and I think you know, there's a lot of scope for trying to think more clearly about these different yeah. things. You know, for for primary school places, you want to know what's actually going to happen. Yes. But for thinking about how how much land you know should be provided in you know West Sussex for these people moving out of London, mm. you need to think what the demand is and also what the need is. Are you what ought to happen? Mm. And you know, it's a different type of model or different scenarios that you need to think yeah. about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mix it all up. Yes, although there is a um, a desire for there to be consistency. I think it's one approach. but you need yeah. big different scenarios from a yeah. consistent yeah. set because, as you said, they're for different you know, purposes. Purposes, yeah. Um, and coming back to kind of Duncan's point about outside um, the home counties and their relationship with London, um, I think a lot of them struggle with their understanding the um, what London generates for them. A huge, huge problem. Yeah. Because every time I look at this for places outside of London, yeah. uh, actually the only place in the world the housing markets, you have to make some assumptions about what's coming out of London. Yes. And I was going to ask you again afterwards, but yeah. what I can see the chairman does not produce anything that you can with that. Or if it does, fantastic. Yeah, no, there's, uh, let's talk, um, because there are some, um, some things that I think can inform it. Um, but I, I should imagine that uh, an upward projection of sort of 10 plus million in London would have significant repercussions for home counties. Can, can I just push back? So whether you get 10 million people in London or not, it seems to me to depend upon the densities at which people are prepared to live yes. and how they trade that off against prices and commuting in from outside. And if you just take one, one story around this. So I mean, Alan Holman's, with a bit of Christine Whitehead, was looking at the longitudinal study at the household sizes of recent migrants mm -hmm. as compared with what you'd expect from another demographic structure and mm -hmm. how that changes after 10 years settlement, 20 years settlement. Right? Yeah. Um, and what he was appearing to show was that in terms of household sizes, household sizes were substantially, or headship rates were substantially lower than you would expect amongst recent migrants, but the gap disappeared after 20 years, roughly speaking. Now, just if we thought about that as a story, you might imagine that people who came in were choosing to, in a sense, accept high densities of occupation for high accessibility within, within London. Um, but over time, their preference has changed 
and they adapted to those that they were prepared to stick it any longer. Mm -hmm. The consequence of that would be they won't get housed inside London. Part of, part of this will be a choice to locate themselves somewhere else in this extended housing market. Yeah. So, so all these things, I mean, if we, if we could only understand them, yeah. that's only one way of thinking about a bit of it, but they all lock together, don't they? Yeah. 
Um, but there is a lot more work that we can look to do with the 2001 census in terms of understanding ethnicity, my, um, migrants, and then the country of birth, British-born versus migrants from those countries where um, their, their fertility is quite different. Does that make sense? Right, hi, um, I'm Daniel from the Commons Magazine. Um, I was just wondering, changing tack a bit from most of the other questions, but you briefly mentioned um, Bulgarian and Romanian immigrants. I was wondering if we have a good sense of where existing Bulgarian and Romanian people in, in London are and, and you know, where new migrants are likely to come when the transition of borders, um, sorry, transition of controls. Not yet. Not yet, because the country of birth data that we have only gives groupings by region. Um, so that's where we've got a kind of EU yeah, so 2001 yeah. and then EU subsequent. Um, we will get more detailed country of birth data in the May release. So we should be able to pick up from there. Yeah. Um, and then we'll further along the line be able to cross-tabulate those countries of birth with sort of length of stay for migrants to be able to then get a bit more of a yeah. richer picture. Putnam. Putnam yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Harrow. Somebody said Harrow as well, especially at time of census. So 2011. Um, a lot of the local authorities <coughs> played a big part in ensuring they got a good census count by putting on sort of help you fill out your form yeah. type desks and things in libraries and high streets and all sorts. And, and yeah, Harrow, I think they said if they get our Romanians right, we'll be happy with the census. <laughs> <laughs> so they'll, I, I will call them sort of closer to the summer and say, how did they do? <laughs> Uh, Nick Banks, uh, you haven't said a lot about age, and particularly age of migrants. Traditionally, m migration has been almost as heavily age-related as fertility. Um, how has it been changing over the last 10 years? What do you deduce from that? I don't think we've got enough to say that it's changed drastically. Our migrants are still tend to be predominantly younger in terms of their age structure. We'll know more from the 2011 census when we get migration by um, age and we kind of get those migration structures, we can take a look at it in a bit more detail. Um, I think, I mean, for London in particular, there's the higher education plays such a big role in attracting migrants and they tend to be within sort of a, a narrower age band. Um, and the expansion in that higher education sector played a significant role. Um, I'd be quite interested to see what the out-migration elements and yeah, the age structures of those are like, um, going back to those young families and whether they're moving that traditional sort of 30, 35 upwards um, out-migration. Um, and also the older age groups, because of that decline in out domestic outflow, I want to see whether that's really hit that kind of retirement older age group as much as um, we think it might have done. Because that may go some way to explain the chart on the wall for it to name but one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, th I think it, things are quite different now. Um, I think the census will hopefully give us a bit more detail about, you know, are there lots of 30-somethings that are living with their parents and not moving out? Mm -hmm. Which allows their average household size. 
are there many more elderly um, Indian Bengali grandmothers living with their families, which I suspect is the case. Um, we're, in that respect, things are a little bit different than they have been in the past, or am I just... Well, I think mine is different. The, yeah, traditionally, all the, the all the net in-migration was between the ages of 21 and 27. Yeah. And, and um, that may have changed. A bit. I, a bit, potentially. I'd be interested to see whether um, that traditional sort of 18, I'm off to university and it's going to go, I'm going to go far, has been... Um, hamstrung a little bit by things like tuition fees and the cost of university now. So whether we see more students domiciled at home um, and not actually showing the term time address on campus necessarily. Um, there's quite a you know, there's a lot that we will be able to look at and um, that will hopefully go some way to telling us whether it is really a brave new world where things are very different or whether there is more of the sort of repetition of trends that we've seen in the past. I'm interested in uh, the sort of contrast between inner and outer London. Um, are there still major differences, you know, in terms of the kind of ethnic makeup and the age makeup? Is that uh, this, uh, this generally being a small movement in London? Young people in London, older people in outer London, ethnic, ethnic uh, minorities, lots of, lots of minorities. Uh, in inner London, quite outer London, at least, you know, contrast uh, changing. Um, depends where. Mm. If well, you it's were not to, as uniform, it's not quite as uniform as it used to be. But if you were to take Havering, Bromley, Bexley, Sutton, um, bits of Merton, um, but very much on the outer edges, not your tooting bits of Burton. There are some, you know, very homogenous places still. Um, most of them had really high um, response rates for census. They were all very compliant. They're predominantly white. Um, white. I say white, not necessarily white British, because we're seeing um, some diversity starting to, 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 to establish there. So even, I think it was a country of birth of mother. Even somewhere like um, Bromley still had some sort of 20% of its births to women who were outside the UK, which I think, which I was surprised at. But um, in terms of density, there's still quite a distinct relationship between inner and outer. I think we're seeing a merging, though, of depending on the variable, it isn't quite what it used to be. And you see overspill from places like Tower Hamlets, Newham, to Barking, Redbridge, um, and they're starting to have certain characteristics that are quite unique to them. Um, and then that sort of inner and outer differentiation doesn't quite apply. Doesn't seem that people get quite as far as havering on that side. Not yet, Not yet but um, you know we can see a really nice evolution of say like sort of uh, sort of Bengal Bangladeshi community from say 91 census to 2001 <coughs> to 2011, from Tar Hamlet further out, Newham, um, and closely Barking Davin and Redbridge, and you yeah you can see that kind of evolution of, of communities, um, but. There, it depends on the variables you're looking at. Um, I'd say the sort of general, generalistic sort of this is inner and this is outer. It's a lot less so now. So much so that we're looking at kind of 
where, where we look at certain assumptions that we applied in the London migration rates with this, add to London migration rates with that. I don't think we'll be doing the same this time around at all. We'll need to look at the data. We'll look at those clustering, those characteristics of Town Hamlets, Newham, Redbridge, having a little sort of hub of themselves, and then, you know, Bexley, Bromley, um, Sutton, Hay. It'll be clustered a bit more and less, um, because what we end up doing is applying um, sort of fudging unique characteristics and blending them too much um, when you've just taken this sort of inner and outer split. Okay. Yeah, one thing on that, I mean, I don't know if it's the other consensus yet, but last year I was looking at some stuff on APS data about sort of blue and white collar worms mm -hmm. effectively. There had actually been a big shift between 2001 and 2011 in the sense that the big rise in white collar residency is in London, which is traditionally blue collar, and actually the rise in blue collar residency in out London, which is traditionally white collar workers. Mm. I don't know if that's come through in the sense yet, but it's actually quite a strong. I haven't seen that split yet from the univariate tables, but it will be definitely something that we'll need to look at in more detail. Um, the GLA, part of the work for TFL, um, is to understand the you will know Dave that is exactly the white collar blue collar split because of their di di differing demands on the transport system um, yeah I, th I think it goes back to that kind of inner London and outer London split being very um, not what it once was um, you know th those generalised characteristics just don't play out in the way that they used to and carving up London in different ways potentially I mean, my concern, in a sense, is that so much has changed since 2011. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 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 There's always one. The fundamental now is in the absence of large household surveys, yep. how we can actually use administrative data to update this, but certainly in terms of, kind of migration patterns, certainly what's happened in the housing market yep. post-boom, post-recession. Yeah. Um, you know, changes certainly would appear to be the case in, in international migration patterns, certainly at the top of the market. A whole range of issues relating to changes in the globalised economy in the last three or four years, which the census won't pick up. Yeah. And then this is an unfair question to you. But, I mean, I think the need, I mean, the point you're raising now about prior assumptions really having gone in or out of London, balanced assumptions and so forth. I think, in a sense, that's possibly even more acute now. And I'm thinking about how we trace the impact of the next round of policy changes in terms of the impact of benefit changes on social polarisation that we talked about here, especially in terms of comparisons with patterns in other cities. And I'm just interested in any views you've got of whether the census data will act as a useful base for this, but also how on earth we actually get large data sets so that we can actually bring this to a certain extent up to date. Because you know, I mean, so much of the housing needs work that's been done in London over the last decade has actually been administrative updating, mm. highly dubious yep. of a you know, relatively small 15,000 or so sample survey in 2001, which was then cross-checked against the census data in 2003. Right, we've got none since. Yep which is sound and usable. So yeah. any views on that challenge? I suspect this is the last question, so can I tax like a novel? Yeah. Is this the last census? Oh, Seems gosh. To yeah, no, it's, it's related. <laughs> <laughs> oh. question, but. You know, um, 
You're absolutely right. We live in a day and age where things are changing so quickly on the ground that the census is out, the data is out, um, it is out, it's rubbish by the time it comes out. So <laughs> um, no, you're absolutely right. What, you know, census completely missed welfare changes and the impact that would have had on migration, um, never mind all the other stuff in between. And we saw that really acutely when with the EU expansion in 2004. We were grappling around going, what can we use? Okay, we can use Ninos, that will tell us a little bit. Um, so that, that, that element of having to use other data sources creatively is something that we've always had to do um, and sense check it. My concern is that um, we may be about to embark on a world where we've got a lot less information than we had previously, but nobody seems to realise that that's potentially the case. Um, is this the last census? It'll, I would bet, my bottom dollar, it's the last census of its kind. Yes, we won't have another census in this way again. I hope we still have a census. Um, in some shape or form. Um, we have much more new technology available. There, there were some very good online responses in terms of volume with regards to this census. So there's lots of different ways of capturing pe um, people and characteristics that way. Um, my concern is some of the, it's that small area, it's a granularity of information that you get from a census that we will lose, that we won't get next time round because we're used to getting it, um, and we've adapted our models on the basis of what we've had in the past. And we're now in a situation where ONS are asking us, local authorities, other organisations, because they're, they're putting forward their case as to what they should be in 2021. Um, Treasury hates census. Treasury hates the funding cycle of census. You need a huge amount of money up front um, and to run it, to do all the processing, to manage it, and then that's it. They, they, they like nice and steady, apparently, um, you know, rather than um, peaks, massive peaks and crops. Um, I, I'm, I, I, I do think that we, we should be a little bit worried about there not being another census. Um, and there being something else that will take the best part of 20 years to get up to a decent standard. Um, I think we should be worried about having access to small area data for the purposes of modelling, whatever that is, um, and the chances of us being able to do that fine-tuning of ge geography, blue collar, qualifications, travel to work chances of ever being able to get that again without a sense of some very, very, very slim. What would we use in its absence? Right now, um, people are trying to put together, I'm not an economist, I said that earlier, but um, uh, the business case for small area data, they are looking at, well, what, how was this information used, what decisions were based on it, what budget was spent on it, um, was that an optimal or suboptimal decision? As in, if you didn't have it, would the alternative have been good enough? That's very difficult for a lot of people in our world and our sphere. Um, 
decent data collection exercises are costly to do well, they're going to cost you something. And my concern is that criticisms around a census being out of date, intrusive, expensive, just override the fact that it's actually an, a useful benchmark, even if it is only every 10 years. I, th I think the value of what we're getting out of it is a lot better than it is to be. Yes. I mean, and what's coming out on GLA websites mm. and rapidly, I think, is a really good example of this. And I, I think we've had yeah. a much faster picture, much more detail than we've ever seen before. Yeah. Um, and the policy makers buy less or not. I think a massive, a much better example than it used to be. Yeah. Um, you thank you for your part in that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, thank you very much for this. We can keep you all evening asking questions, um, but you better Happy go and count something. <laughs> 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 Thank you very much.